Okay, if you took your seat, I'm going to invite you to stand again. And those of you that are worshiping with us online, if you're with us in your living room or your apartment or your dorm, you also could stand with us, one congregation together, as we prepare to open the scriptures this morning. We're going to declare our faith here, the faith of the church, which has been given to us and which we're carrying on. Say it with me this morning, church. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And all God's people said... You may be seated. We are in the book of Zechariah this morning as I finish out our series on the minor prophets. We're going to cover a prophet here who actually spoke one of the most specific prophecies about the coming of the Messiah into Jerusalem, which we'll get to towards the end of the message. But I'm in the book of Zechariah, second to the last book of the Old Testament. If you remember your Old Testament history, which we have covered some as we've gone through this Everyday Prophets series, in 722 BC, the Assyrian army came through and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And after the Assyrian empire was conquered about a hundred years later, it left a sort of vacuum of power in the ancient Near East, which the Babylonians rose up into. And in 586 BC, the Babylonians swept through that same area and then dove down into the southern kingdom of Judah and conquered that. And with that, God's punishment of his people, according to the witness of the Old Testament, was complete. And those people that lived in Judah and Jerusalem were taken away into exile in 586 BC. One of the great prophets of ancient Israel, the prophet Jeremiah, actually prophesied that that period of deportation, of being away from the land, would last 70 or so years. And when you look at the history, that's about how long it did last. And towards the last third to a quarter of the 6th century BC, so in the early 500s or so, uh, there was a man by the name of Cyrus the Persian, the great king, Persian king, who permitted the Jews to leave Babylon and go back to their homeland to rebuild the city and the wall and the temple. And the temple, remember, for for the ancient Jewish people was seen as the nexus between heaven and earth. It was the meeting ground between God and and the people. So as they're rebuilding the temple, what they're doing is they're creating a space for God. And there were a number of prophets that were called alongside the people in those days to encourage them in the work and to help them. One of those prophets was Haggai, 
which Pastor Daniel preached on a few weeks ago here, and the other was Zechariah. Zechariah and Haggai were contemporaries. They knew each other, and they were not just prophesying to the people, but also helping the people in the task of rebuilding that meeting ground between heaven and earth. Zechariah's name comes from the Hebrew word, word uh, Zachar. Can I hear you say Zachar? You get it like in the back of the earth. Zachar, that's it. Good. Zachar means to remember. And when you combine it with that, uh, that suffix Yah, it's Zachariah, means Yahweh remembers. And what we're going to see in the book of Zechariah is that Yahweh remembers his promises to his people, and he has plans to fulfill them in a way that will blow all of their minds. With that, let's pause for a word of prayer. And so we thank you, our Lord and God, our present and coming King, that we are always in your presence. The psalmist said, when I awake, I am still with you. Like even when we're not conscious of you, you are with us. And the task of our wakefulness is to acknowledge your presence and to recognize your presence. And so we pray that you would help us in these moments of wakefulness here to recognize your presence, to accept you and receive you, and to yield our hearts and our lives to you afresh. We thank you that you, Lord Jesus, are described as the living word, the very word of God. And so what you do is you take the words of scripture and you take the preacher's words and You combine them together and you throw the incense of your presence into them and you make them the very word of God. And so I'm praying that this morning, living word, that you would resound through the words of the prophet Zechariah and that you would resound on my lips this morning, that you would help your people rise up into all that you've called them to be, that you'd help them be all that you've asked them to be. Grant that, we're praying. We say, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. So Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord said, Zechariah had been speaking to this angel of the Lord. Now the angel of the Lord turns and starts talking to God. The angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy? Everybody say withhold mercy. So even though the people of God have been back in the land and the temple was being rebuilt, they still felt as though they were under the wrath of God in some way, which I'll explain in just a second. Now, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah with which you have been angry these 70 years? And so the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. And then the angel who was speaking to the Lord turned to me. And out of that encouragement and comfort that the angel got from the Lord, he speaks to Zechariah and he says this. Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, and I'm very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little bit angry, but they went too far with the punishment. Therefore, now this is what the Lord says. I will return. Everybody say, I will return. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt. And the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said, thanks be to God. They're back in the land. They're back in the city. The temple is being rebuilt. 
And yet there's this profound sense of discouragement that hangs in the air above the people of God. So much so that even though at this point, they're just a few years away from completing that project and having the temple rebuilt, still they feel in some way that they're under the wrath of God. And there is a reason for that. And the reason is that when they looked at this new temple, it just didn't seem all of that impressive, okay? Most Jews of the period actually felt as though this rebuilt temple, as they were putting it back together again, was little more than a glorified shack, shanty, a little shelter for the presence of God, like something that you get at Home Depot or Lowe's or whatever for a few hundred bucks and throw in your backyard, you know, like that. And then this is going to be the dwelling place of God? Are, are you kidding? And they remembered, many of them did, they remembered what the old temple, the temple under Solomon was like. You might remember, if you know your Old Testament history, you've read the book of First Kings and the description about Solomon's temple. It was beautiful. Solomon's temple would have been at that time considered one of the wonders of the world. Everything in Solomon's temple, from the pillars to the walls, the frame, everything, the, the lampstands, the table, it was like there was so much wealth and prosperity in Israel that everything in the temple was covered with gold. I mean, imagine being in this place and everything, the walls and the ceiling, the floor, and it's all gold, right? You go, well, this is a fitting place for God to dwell. And when you were in Solomon's temple, you saw a scarlet and purple and blue yarn and drapes everywhere. I mean, it was like everything in it said, this is a fitting place for God to dwell. Furthermore, so not only did they remember that, but they also knew the prophecies of the major prophets, guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. You might remember, if you've ever read the book of Ezekiel, that when Ezekiel gets into the last several chapters of his prophecy, he looks ahead to the rebuilding of the city and the wall and the temple. And the temple, in Ezekiel's imagination, is absolutely fabulous. I mean, it's great. It's huge, huge temple, a very fitting place for God to dwell. So not only do they have the memory of Solomon's temple, but they also have the image of Ezekiel's temple in their mind. And then they look at this thing and it just looks dumpy. And it's like discouraging to them. Like we spent all that time in Babylon and we've been given all these resources. And we're coming back here and all we have is a little like one bedroom apartment for God to dwell in. Come on. Surely we can do better than that. And that sense of discouragement was so deep for them. And so it's into that feeling of discouragement that Zechariah begins to prophesy. And he says, hey, I know that it doesn't seem like a lot right now, but the promise still remains that God is going to fill this place with his glory. Haggai actually said something similar in the book of Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Look at this. Haggai writes, who is of you is left who saw the house in its former glory? Now, how does it look to you now? Uh, doesn't it seem to you like nothing? But now be strong Zerubbabel, declares the Lord, and be strong Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. Be strong, all of you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. And this is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you, so don't fear. In other words, what Haggai is saying to the people is that even though this looks a little bit dumpy, and even though it's not very impressive, and even though it might be difficult for you to discern the signs of God's presence in it, just know that the Spirit already is in it. The Spirit has been guiding your efforts. The Spirit has been orchestrating all of this to bring about this space for God to dwell in. And this is what the Lord Almighty says in verse 6. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, 
I will shake all of the nations and what is desired by all the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty, and the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty, and in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. But do you hear what the prophet is saying? That God is saying to his people, now listen, I know that this doesn't seem impressive, and I know that it doesn't seem imposing. And I know it's not everything that you hoped it would be, but you continue to do your work. If you continue to do your part, you continue to create this space for my presence. And I promise you, my presence will fill this place in such a way that the glory of this dumpy little shelter (laughs) will be greater than all of the glory of Solomon's former house. I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. And that which is desired by all nations will come. I'll fill this place with glory. And in this place, I will grant shalom. Shalom is that state of affairs where everything is working as God intends. And God says that in this place, that state of affairs where everything is working, everything is right, it's going the way that God intends it to go, will happen in this place. And from this place to the nations, there will be transformation. Are you tracking with me this morning, brothers and sisters? Zechariah and Haggai both remind us that our call is to make a space for God in the world. That's our call. Our call is to make a space for God in the world and that God's promise is that he will fill that space with his presence. Our call, making space for God, God's promise, filling it with his presence. All of the energy of being the people of God exists at the intersection of those two things. Our call, creating a space for God, God's promise, filling it with his presence. Can I get an amen this morning? I had uh, the good pleasure, the privilege when I was a kid of growing up with a bunch of high schools and I was working through my high school years, a bunch of high schoolers who loved the Lord, hearts for Jesus. And we did all the normal things that high schoolers did. We hung out and... You know, there actually wasn't, I'm from Marshfield, Wisconsin, a little city of 18,000 people. There was not a lot to do there. So we drove our cars around, you know, doing stuff, not very much. You know, we would hang out like the most exotic, fun thing that you could do in Marshfield was hang out at Perkins Family Restaurant until two in the morning. That was like us. That's what we did. We, you know, it was good though to be in a group of people that just love Jesus. And uh, one of my friends, part of that group, Ben Wanta was his name, Ben's parents, Terry and Bonnie had bought this beautiful piece of property about 10 minutes outside of the city and they built this house that was intended to be a place for entertaining people, hospitality, and they were the consummate hosts. Just perfect, beautiful spirit of hospitality. And they would host these just most wonderful hangout nights, Friday nights and Saturday nights out there. We would go out to the country and Bonnie would cook these amazing meals, a great homemaker, and cook us this amazing food and then she would make these chocolate chip cookies that you just like could not stop eating them. Like they had crack in them or something, crack cookies, you know. And, and you remember how it was in high school. You could eat like 30 cookies and it would have no impact whatsoever on your body. You know, like the Lord, very forgiving when you're in high school. And so we'd hang out at the Wanta's house, you know, Friday night, Saturday night. And we'd watch movies and eat cookies and sit in the hot tub, hang out under the stars, having conversations. And also... Oftentimes, when we were over at their house, they had this little den, and Terry played the guitar, so he had guitars hanging up on the walls and sitting around. And one of my friends, 
My friend Michael was an emerging worship leader at the time and beginning to discover that gift. And Michael just had one of those gifts that when he grabbed the guitar and he started playing, something happened in the room. And so we'd get pile into the den and Michael would start playing and worship songs would begin to flow. And that group of 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds, all of a sudden we would begin to lean into the presence of God together and something would happen. And you've had those moments in your life, in your devotional time or in a worship service where all of a sudden the ancient Celts used to talk about the veil between heaven and earth getting thin, the thin place. That you'd wind up in the presence of God and all of a sudden that line between heaven and earth, that line between the visible and the invisible would get really thin. And we'd begin to experience the presence of God and pretty soon those high schoolers in that place are prophesying over one another and worshiping the Lord and laying on the ground and tears are flowing and God is moving in power. And what I love about that when I think back to it is that, you know, we have become so churchified in our time that what we think is that we can't really have a profound experience of the presence of God unless we got the sound and the lights and the smoke machine and professional church people putting on professional church things. And we learned in those years that you just don't need very much in the same way that the people of Zechariah and Haggai's day were learning that it doesn't actually take that much. The Lord's like, you just give me your dumpy little shed, whatever it is that you're putting together. Give me the best that you've got and I'll fill it with my presence. And there we are, 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds, giving God the best that we have, just our little lives and our little hearts and our little bit of hunger for the Lord. And God moved in, in a powerful way. That's what he does. Our call is to create a space for God in the world, and God's promise is to fill it with his presence. And when he does fill those spaces with his presence, it changes everything for people. And don't you know that is the desperate cry of the human heart, is not just to know a bunch of true things about the universe or about God. The desperate cry of the human heart isn't just to know what's morally true and good and right. The desperate cry of the human heart is to have our spirit touching the spirit of God. It's to have a direct interface with the living God. The great St. Augustine said it so well when he said, you awaken us, O God, to delight in your praise, for you have made us for yourself and our souls are restless until they rest in thee. That's what we hunger for. <laughs> we hunger for an encounter with the living God. Remember a couple years ago, serving on staff at the Friday night community, Pastor Daniel and I had just finished up a Friday night service and this guy came up to us after the service with tears in his eye. He said, look, my name is Mark. I just wanted to introduce myself to you. And I've been coming to this, your services now for the last three or four weeks. And I sit in the back over there. And when I sit in these services, he said, I just weep and I weep and I weep. And we said, well, tell us what's, what's going on. And he said, well, the truth is that I didn't, I didn't grow up in church. And I don't actually know a lot of what's happening here <laughs> when we gather. And I'm not even truthfully very certain how I got into this whole thing with you guys the last several weeks. He said, but I've been through a terrible time in my life. He said, I used to live out in California and my wife and I had a couple kids and she was diagnosed with, with breast cancer five or six years ago. She went through this up and down journey with that. And we did everything that we knew how to do to fight this breast cancer. And it seemed like at times she was turning the corner and getting better. And then all of a sudden she would regress. And he said, and it became very clear about three or four years ago that she was starting to lose the battle. And so I'm embracing myself to lose my wife. And he said, but the heartbreaking thing was that I lost her long before I lost her. But as the cancer started spreading throughout her body, it also ate up her mind, which chewed up her personality. And he said, in that last year before she died, six to 12 months, we didn't know each other anymore. 
and I buried her long before I buried her. And he said the most horrible thing was that at the same time that that was going on where I was losing the love of my life right in front of my eyes, I had this successful business that I built with a close friend of mine. And while I'm dealing with this family crisis over here, this guy, one of my best friends, the person probably outside of my wife that I trusted the most in the world, was stealing my business from me and I didn't realize it was happening. And I had no sooner finished the funeral service for my wife than I turned around and realized that I'd been bracketed out of my business, my whole livelihood, everything that I'd worked so hard to achieve, all of a sudden, I'm out. And so I lost my wife and I lost my business and I lost my best friend all in the space of a year. And he said that in the time that has ensued since that moment, those moments, that crisis, he said, I have not cried until I started coming to these services. And now he said, I sit in the back and I weep and I weep and I weep through these services and I don't know what's happening to me. And Daniel and I both looked at him and we said, bro, listen, you don't know this, but now we declare it unto you. What's happening in you is from the Holy Spirit. That what ha what's happening is that all of that pain and all of that hurt and all of that agony and all of that unlamented grief, the spirit of the living God is touching your life. And he's pulling all of that stuff to the surface right now. The Lord Jesus Christ, the healer, is touching your life and making it whole. And we're here to tell you that you can trust him. And keep surrendering your life to him. Keep opening your heart to the Holy Spirit. And he'll change everything for you. And that guy still goes to Friday night. He's a Christian now because of it. Guys. Do we gather? What is it that we're after? So many Christians come into spaces like this, and for them, this is the rehearsal of some religious ritual. It's rem remembering the things that we've all assented to, that we say we believe. It's sort of a mental exercise. For a lot of people, coming to church is just kind of a pep rally for Jesus. It's where we all gather together and we remember our hero, Jesus, and we high five each other and get encouraged again about Jesus. And at its best, the people of God gather to create a space for the living God to move. That's why we get together. That's what this is all about. And the Lord Jesus himself, before he ascended into heaven, one of his last moments with his disciples, he said this in Acts chapter 1. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John, I love this, John baptized you with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with what? What does it mean to be baptized? It is to be immersed into something. Here is what the Lord Jesus is saying. That John immersed you in water. But what I'm going to do as you stay here and you wait on me is I'm going to take your dead bodies and I am going to dunk you in undiminished life itself. We say of the Holy Spirit that he is the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. Jesus says, I'm going to dunk you in that. 
I'm going to take your dead bodies and I am going to bathe them in light and life and victory and you will come up out of your grave as a new creation. Guys, this is what it means to be the church is that we are those who are immersed in the Holy Spirit. And more than that, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Where? Do the prophecies of Zechariah and Haggai find fulfillment? Right here. Right now. It's all coming true in front of our eyes. The glory of the present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And in this place, God will grant us his peace and he's doing it even now. We are the temple of the living God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Every one of our lives, all of our strength, all of our past, all of our future, all of our energy, what God is doing is he's fitting us together to become a dwelling place where God himself can move in by the very spirit of God. This is why we give ourselves over to the effort of being the church. Or at least this is why I'm doing it. I'm not doing it to try to keep a religion going. Though Christianity has religious elements to it, the things that we bind ourselves to, but I'm not doing it for that reason. And I'm do not doing it because I couldn't find something better to do. <laughs> I'm doing it because I believe that when we give ourselves to the effort of the church, what it does, <laughs> the psalmist said, throw open the gates that the king of glory may come in. I believe that when we throw ourselves into this, what it does is it throws open the gates for the king of glory to come in and it changes people's lives. And by the way, the effort that we give to the church is not just confined to this moment right here, but it's all of the things that we do that make these moments happen. The moments where we encounter the living God, it's all of it. Everything that's happening in this moment rests on all of the tithes and all of the offerings. It rests on all of the volunteering and helping in kids' ministry like we've been calling for. It rests on handing out communion elements and plugging in cords and cables and making sure that all of these things happen. It's the total cumulative effort of the people of God adds up to a space where God can move in among his people. Are you with me this morning? Guys, if you haven't yet, if you're standing on the sidelines, be on the sidelines no longer. <laughs> God is moving. God is moving. That every time we get together in this space, for how bizarre even this space is, you know, we got that weird big blue bear on the wall back there. And still, when we're getting together Sunday in and Sunday out, lives are being joined together and the spirit of God is rushing into this place and he's changing people's lives. That's why we do this. So one of the reasons that we throw ourselves in the effort of being the church is that it prepares a space for God to move in the world. But there's an occupational hazard here. And the occupational hazard really belongs to those of us 
that have been in this for any length of time. That we've seen God move in one way or in another way. We've watched God through the years move in this way and that way. And so we have in our minds, if we're not careful, we have in our minds a picture of what it looks like when the Spirit of God is really at work in a place. And that picture that we have of what it looks like when God really moves can blind us to what God is doing right in front of our faces. One of the great stories of the Old Testament comes out of the book of Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah were leaders that oversaw the work of rebuilding the temple and the wall and the city. And in the book of Ezra, Ezra was a scribe among the people of God. And Ezra records this story. Remember, the people of God had been in exile. They come back into the land and they had just finished the re- rebuilding the, the foundation to the temple. And we read this in Ezra chapter 3. That when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with their trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, they took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. And with praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good and His love towards Israel endures forever. And can you imagine what that moment was like? They had been slaves in Babylon for all of those years. And I'm sure all of those years, decade after decade, they knew the Psalms, the Psalm that we sang earlier, Psalm 118, that the Lord is good and his love endures forever. But when you're in Babylon, when you're in a situation of crisis, it can be difficult to remember that the Lord is good and that his love endures forever. Can you imagine those years, those decades of being in exile and wondering, but God, are you really good? Like, this isn't how the story was supposed to go. Are you really good? Does your love really endure forever? And sure enough, just like the Lord had delivered his people out of Egypt all those centuries earlier, now he had delivered them out of Babylon and he was creating space for them again. And so from the depths of their being, the praise begins to arise. The Lord is good and his love endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Verse 12, but, everybody say but. But many of the older priests and the Levites and the family heads who had seen the former temple, what did they do? They wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy, verse 13, and no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Why were they weeping? Because it didn't look anything like it had looked in the past. And so they couldn't receive what God was doing in that moment because of their memory of how God did it in the past. Meanwhile, the young people, the children, those that were fresh into it, they could see the work of God. They spotted it. And the sound of the weeping and the sound of rejoicing blended together. And that sound was heard for miles around. And that is a cautionary tale. For those of us that have been in this for any length of time and we've seen God move in other areas and other places, we have in our minds a picture of what it looks like when God is really at work in the world. And that can so easily blind us to what God is doing right now. And I speak from experience on this as well. Grew up in this church in central Wisconsin. I told you about Believer's Church, Marshfield, Wisconsin. Actually, two of my pastors are from Marshfield, Wisconsin. They're Glenn and Vicki Smith. Can we give it up for Glenn and Vicki Smith here? It's such an amazing church. It's a charismatic church on the edge of town. And, 
And God moved in such a powerful way in that church. And that church, I don't think I realized it at the time, but as I made my way through my 20s and my early 30s, that church and all the things that God did there, it was always, for me, it was like a picture of what maturity as a church looks like. And then in 2009, uh, my wife and I accepted a call to help some friends plant a church in Denver, Bloom Church in Denver, Colorado. And I remember, and I actually have, we have former house church leaders from Bloom Church, Nick and Stephanie Rettenauer are here in the back of the room. Give it up for Nick and Steph. So here we go, like, look at this, like, bridge between pieces of Andrew's world. He's getting all warm and fuzzy inside, you know. And I remember Bloom was such a scrappy, ragtag community, you know. And I remember all those years, especially those early years of pastoring Bloom, as I'm working through that process of trying to help this church come to maturity, in my mind, what it looked like for a church to be mature is that it looked like whatever was going on in Marshfield, Wisconsin in the 80s and the 90s. And I remember on Sunday nights, our services at Bloom or Sunday nights, I remember Sunday nights preaching at Bloom and I would always use these examples from our church back in Marshfield because I wanted them to have examples of what it looked like when one day we'll really be a grown-up church, <laughs> you know? And I did that for years and I didn't realize what was happening at the time but I started to begin to see that what was going on was that in my heart, that picture of how God moved up in Wisconsin in the, in the 80s and the 90s, that to me was slowly but surely becoming a kind of judgment against the community that I was currently pastoring. Like one day when God really moves among us, we'll look like this. One day when we're a mature church, it'll look like this. One day when we're fully grown up, it'll look like this, and I remember getting about five or six years into that church plant. I'd finished preaching one Sunday night, and the, everybody's going through the communion line. And I remember being undone with grief in my soul. So I'm looking at what our church in Denver had become. It was so beautiful. In many ways, it was everything that we ever dreamed that a church could be and more. Like, don't look now, Andrew, but it has become a mature church. And the kind of, and it had the, like, the maturity of that church in so many ways could not even be compared to the maturity of the other church. It was just a different thing. Because that is what God is like. <laughs> so the psalmist is always saying, sing to the Lord a, a new song. <laughs> because God is endless. And so his creativity and his expression goes on and on. And so what the church at its best is doing is the church is trying to create, is trying to catch up to the ever fresh newness of God. And one of the corollaries of God being ever fresh and always new is that his work is ever fresh and always new. God never does the same work twice. Similar signs always to his work. We can catch the signature and the trace of his ways, but the form that it takes shape in, it's always changing and it's always different. And you can't compare what happened in Wisconsin in the 80s and the 90s to what was going on in Denver in the late 2009s into the teens or whenever that was. They're just different things. God is doing different things. And now I get people all the time will ask me, okay, so Andrew, you got this thing. You're working on New Life East on the east side of the city. How much and to what extent are you trying to kind of carry on the work that started in Denver? And I will always say to them, not at all. <laughs> What a disrespect it would be to what God has done in other eras, in other times, in other places. Let those things be what they are. My question that I'm always asking now with this work is, God, what are you doing here? What, what, what are you doing? What's the new thing 
that you're doing among us right here and right now? What are you calling us to be? What, what kind of a pastor are you asking me to be now? How are you asking us to worship right now? How do you want us to do community right now? What's the dream that you have for a church on the east side of the city? I'm not going to compare this to anything that's ever come before. I just want to stand at the cutting edge of what you're doing here, now, not then and there. That's, that's our call, brothers and sisters. It's to be like those people that welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem as he rode in on a donkey. Not the Messiah that anybody expected, but the Messiah that God gave. Matthew chapter 21. The scripture says that as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her, and untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, this, by the way, is Zechariah's prophecy right here. See your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so the disciples went and they did as Jesus instructed and they brought the donkey and the colt and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. Verse 8, and a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and they asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Brothers and sisters, do you know who wasn't there that day welcoming Jesus in? It was the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law. The people that should have known better. The people that knew the history, they knew the story, they knew the traditions. They should have had eyes to see the Messiah when he came, and they didn't. It was the rabble. It was the crowds. It was the people of low education it was the children in the midst that welcomed the Messiah. And I'm saying that in my own heart, and I hope that you can say this of yourself as well, that I want to be like that. Open-hearted to whatever God is doing right now. And I don't want to be so married to my ideas of what it's all supposed to look like that I miss God when God shows up in front of me. And... One final thing, and with this, we'll make the turn into communion. This story is a cautionary tale in an even deeper way than the Ezra story is. And you know what the cautionary tale is here? That the same crowds that welcomed him as a king on Palm Sunday also called for his crucifixion on Good Friday. And you know what would be really easy with a message like this? would be to leave you with the impression that if you just try harder and if you just pray enough and if you just really kind of knuckle down and become good, devoted Christians, you can recognize God when he comes. And the good news of the gospel is not that if we try really hard, we can recognize God when he comes. The good news of the gospel is that we don't recognize God when he comes. And still he comes to redeem us. Let's stand this morning and prepare our hearts for communion.
It's always a miracle, guys. It's always a miracle. If we are ever able to stay in step with God and what God is doing, it's because God came first and made it possible in us. And so when we come to this moment, to the table of the Lord, we're not coming as those that have figured it all out. We're coming as those who are blind and need to see. And so now, Lord, we lift up our hearts as a church to you. We lift up our hearts and we make this our prayer before you. We say, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And so that's what we're saying to you this morning, Lord Jesus. We're asking that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would heal us, that you would open up our eyes, that you would give us hearts to recognize your work and to run with your work. Grant that we are asking in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. Let's respond in worship with this song and then Pastor Colin will lead us to the table. Oh, baby. 
the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me. Whom the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. Now my dead is Would you grab your communion elements? Would you respond? The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And now in this place, would you give him thanks and praise for everything that he has done? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you proclaim the mystery of our faith this morning? That Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. God, we stand before you thankfulness. Thank you for your presence in this place. Thank you that when we did not recognize you, you came to us anyway. And what we hold in our hands is the promise that you will come again. Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Let's receive the bread together.
Let's receive the cup together. Thank you, Jesus. Would you lift your voice and respond in worship today? you lift your hands like this. Receive this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and grant you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. I'll invite our altar ministry team to come forward. If you need prayer for anything, we would love to pray for you. Remember, if you're new, grab a gift at Connect Central on the way out. Three services next Sunday, 8, 10, and noon. Good Friday is at 6 and 8. It's going to be a wonderful week. We're so glad to see you this morning. Have a great week, and we'll see you next weekend.